you're dealing with problems that people face every day on the ground floor that are life and death problems, truly life and death problems, and in which they need real guidance. Progress needs to be made. The Ethicist Corner, a new podcast brought to you by the Kegley Institute of Ethics. And welcome everybody to the Ethicist Corner, a podcast about ethics in everyday life. My guest today is Dr. Brian Swick, an assistant professor of philosophy and university studies at Portland State University. Brian is also a previous visiting scholar at the Institute for Practical Ethics at UC San Diego. And his research focuses on bioethics, political philosophy, and philosophy of science. Uh, Brian, welcome. Thanks for, thanks for joining us today. Very nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. So uh, most of our listeners will know uh, that Brian and I are, are former colleagues from our, our days at Penn State, um, formative years for both of us, the, the Happy Valley, as folks back, back east call it. Um, Brian, uh, how are you doing in these unprecedented times? How's quarantine going for you? Oh, it's fine. I'm doing okay. Uh, personally speaking, we've, we've been managing just fine here. Uh, I don't have to, my wife and I don't have to deal with a lot of the things that everybody else does. We are salaried and, uh, you know, so we haven't lost our jobs. We haven't uh, had anything like that happen to us. We do have a lot of friends and family members who treat COVID patients right now. We are most worried about them above all. Uh, And, uh, but otherwise, you know, we're managing, we're managing very well. Doing okay. Okay. You know, I mean, one of the things I'm noticing in quarantine, right, is new hobbies and ways of communicating and things that people are taking on, right? Kind of the creativity that comes out of it. Mm-hmm. Are there any new, like, habits or hobbies that you've developed in quarantine that you weren't doing before? Yeah, actually, I guess that's, I guess when you think about it, I have. Uh, so I've taken to having friends via Zoom, which is, uh, I mean, I never, I maybe use Zoom twice in my life. For the lockdown, and now I use Zoom like pretty much every day. Yeah. And uh, after a couple of weeks, it became when it became clear this was long term. Started having uh, things happen on Zoom. So like last week, I played the game Cards Against Humanity with all my siblings and my mother. Ah, oh, nice. My friends and I have been doing a sort of weekly happy hour on Zoom. That's not a hobby per se. Having friends is not really. A hobby, <laughs> but. It's just kind of an interesting thing to me how uh, quickly, uh, you know, just adapted to socializing via this uh, thing, Zoom. And actually, it's kind of all right. It's not, you know, it's not a substitute, but it's been fun. I've also been just reading a lot more. I've been playing my guitar a lot more than I usually do. I've been trying to paint, learn to paint for a couple of years now. And I've done that more in the last month than I think I have in the two years prior. And uh, for some reason this week, I thought, you know, what would be fun is if I tried to study ancient Greek on my own. So in short, I think I'm actually going crazy from boredom. <laughs> don't even realize it. I'm not totally in touch with it. So there's a lot of interesting things there. But the Cards Against Humanity, do you actually play with a regular card stack or is it like an there's, online version? There's an online version called uh, allbad.cards. <laughs> allbad.cards. Okay. Allbad.cards. It's great. It's literally an online version of the game. You can play together and it works just like, it's like you're just playing the game. Wow. All it right. Took, All it right. took us two seconds. My mom is 67 years old. It took her two seconds. To, she's not 67. How old is she this year? Five. <laughs> she's not young. Let's put it that way. She's not a digital native in the parlance of our times. She took two seconds to learn it. it, it okay. Was, 
All right, listeners, you heard it here first. Uh, Recommend it to all your guests. Okay. Brian, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about a bit is, you know, one of your areas of of research expertise, I think is, you know, people, people have on their minds, whether they know it or not, um, during this pandemic, but it's, it's about bioethics, right? This field. And I think a lot of people know of that term. They, maybe they've heard that term before, but they probably have little sense of what it actually means or what bioethicists actually do. So can you, can you like educate us some on that? Like, so what, what is bioethics? What does it mean to do bioethics? Well, if you put 10 bioethicists in the room and you ask them the same question you get, you're probably going to get at least seven different answers. One of the most striking features of the field is how broad it is and how much it's changed over the last couple of decades. So, I mean, in general, let's just say bioethics involves a certain kind of philosophical engagement with medicine and with medicine adjacent areas like the life sciences, biomedical research, and even some uh, public health, things that involve environmental issues of one kind or another, all of that stuff would be considered uh, part of bioethics. It's easier to give examples than it is to try and define the field as a whole. So I can say one, you know, also conceptual, like larger philosophical questions about gene therapy and translation of gene editing techniques into medicine for use in treating human diseases. That's something that would be like a, a quintessential. Yeah, and so I, that's, that's actually, that's helpful. I mean, and so I know, Brian, you do some research that's actually sponsored by the National Human Genome Research Institute and mm-hmm. National Institutes of Health uh, I do, on, yeah. on gene editing. Right. I guess, what question, what is gene editing and should we be terrified? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quick definition of gene editing is it's where you try to alter the function of a gene by making changes in the structure of the DNA. That uh, uh, there's no way to say this without getting into some kind of philosophical trouble, but I'm just going to say the DNA that realizes the gene. Okay. So uh, inside every cell, every living cell is a, a set of DNA, and some of these strands or sections of DNA encode genes. Genes are, uh, simply put, their functions. A gene is uh, what the strand of DNA does, right? Ultimately, it, uh, that strand of DNA turns into a trait of the organism that has the cell in it. And so gene editing means I want to change the trait that the organism has. I want to change the function of the gene, and I do that by making a change to the DNA. Hmm. Why you can would alter we... gene function in a lot of different ways. You can alter gene function pharmaceutically, for example. You can take a drug that suppresses a certain sort of gene. But gene editing isn't just altering functions. It means you make changes to the structure of the DNA. And by making those changes, you hope that the gene then changes what it does. So why, why would we want to do that? Why, why would somebody want to edit genes? There is a, a, literally a basket of, issue, of reasons why. It, it all depends on the air. It depends on many, many things. But uh, So one of the biggest applications of gene editing is in the manufacture of industrial chemicals. Uh, that's, um, and in agriculture. Those, those are big uses of gene editing. You can do this to, to make things uh, in a more efficient way. You can do this to boost crop yields. And there's all kinds of different reasons like that. But usually when people ask that question, what they mean is why would we ever do it in a person? And the simple answer is there is a set of g- diseases that have 
if they're not genetic diseases specifically, they have a significant genetic cause. And these diseases are very difficult to treat with all the means that are currently available and the development of what are called gene therapies. So the use of gene editing, right, in the treatment of these diseases uh, offers a, a, a clinical potential that doesn't exist right now and gets people very excited that maybe progress could be made against diseases like, let's say, sickle cell anemia, okay. which have proven to be very difficult to treat with existing therapeutic interventions. And uh -huh. Given the, the possibility of, of treating illnesses that, as you've just noted, say our, our best efforts thus far have failed or have not been tremendously effective, mm -hmm. um, what is the controversy around gene editing? Why wouldn't people just be like saying, well, like, hey, like we, can, we can do this, this, this editing, we can possibly improve conditions for millions of people. What's the problem? What's the downside here? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are many different downsides. Some are technical and have to do with some technical issues and research ethics and clinical ethics. But the, the one that, that everyone talks about is worry that gene therapy would be used to select traits, not for medical or clinical purposes, but for non-medical purposes, to alter the functions of genes so that people can, uh, let's say, conform more to things that we want them to have. and. Uh, and features of persons that we think are desirable or valuable, uh, but not necessarily for the treatment of disease, but just to do things like, you know, get people who have the physical characteristics we find desirable, mm. um, you know, who have certain of their characteristics enhanced. I mean, just generally, let's say, the worry is that we'll use gene therapy, gene editing to choose traits for people like we're choosing food at a buffet, mm -hmm. uh, and that this could be, this is, held to be problematic for a lot of a lot of different reasons right okay yeah um i mean yeah right so i can, I can see that so this this makes me think a bit about um you know kind of the growing field of of public philosophy too um which is you know kind of this, this growing tag word within certain academic circles but this effort by and large to use the skills of philosophy to collaborate with or improve our communities or to directly engage with like practical issues in our world. Right. And bioethics is often cited as an early form of public philosophy in that regard. But, you know, assuming that engaging beyond the university is a good thing for say philosophers and people in the academy to do, what role if any can bioethicists play like in major health crises, like the one we're facing now, like, yeah. I mean, what's the role of the bioethicist philosopher at a time like this? Well, you asked three questions in there, I think. So <laughs> let, me, let me, I think, maybe I counted at least three. At least three. But let me start by saying this. I, I don't like this distinction between public and other kinds of philosophy. Okay. Uh, because all philosophy that's good should be public in the way in which you described. If a philosophical problem is worth working on, uh, then that means it's by definition, I think, public in, in, in this way. Uh, I don't like philosophy that engages with problems or parts of the world or, or you know, tries to solve puzzles in which at the outset you, you don't see any sort of upshot of the kind you just described. Uh -huh. uh, you would never do intellectual work like this in any other discipline. You know, no biologist, for example, would say, well, I don't think this problem sheds any new or interesting light on, uh, you know, the nature of our knowledge of the living world or, or is going to have any sort of potential benefit in the future for human health. I just think it's an interesting puzzle 
and why can't I, I'm, and so I'm gonna try and solve it for no reason at all, that nobody would ever, would ever do that, ever. I mean, you would be considered just, a, just completely wasting your time. Biologists pick problems to solve, things to work on and do research on, because they think that by doing that, we'll learn more about nature and about the living world. And you know, practical impacts are not really the, the, the important issue here. It's just, it it's, that's what biologists do, right? They increase our stock of knowledge about the world. Nobody would ever pick something simply because it's a puzzle that interests them, but they think it's actually not really important for biologists to work on. Uh, somehow in philosophy, we have this idea that things that are merely interesting problems, but uh, you know, are perfectly okay to work on, whereas this, and this huge heap of things that requires real attention by smart people, uh, you know, is something that's just practical or public philosophy or applied ethics or something like that. And it's not something that you're, you know, you have any sort of obligation as a scholar, as a researcher to take seriously even, let alone work on. Mm -hmm. So uh, bioethics is, to me, I think, one of the best, most philosophical, most demanding and challenging areas of philosophy because it deals with problems that uh, are real problems. They're not just ethical case, you know, they're not just like hypothetical cases about two men on an island and one has 10 hairs and one has one hair or something like that, that we use to refine ever more, you know, ever more scholastic moral principles that even the people working on them know don't actually apply in any sort of real moral reasoning situation. I mean, instead, with you're dealing with problems that people face every day on the ground floor that are life and death problems, truly life and death problems, and in which they need real guidance. Progress needs to be made. You know, mm -hmm. it's not it's not just a matter of making like a a neat move in this game about whether or not consequentialist or non-consequentialist moral theories are the best ones. If I solve an issue. In, uh, or sorry, solve is the wrong word. But if I deal with an issue in human subjects, research, ethics, or in something like that, you know, people do experiments on people and they need real guidance about how to do those in a way that minimizes harm, respects autonomy, things of this kind. Yeah. Bioethics is definitely public philosophy in that sense, but uh, I think it's quintessentially public philosophy. And during times like these, this is a really good example of why people who are good need to work on these sorts of problems. I mean, the coronavirus pandemic has generated very serious ethical issues. And it's a very good thing that we live in a world in which uh, people pay attention to these things and, and have done work on them uh, because life and death decisions need to be made literally you know, every day in the middle of this thing. And uh, many of these life and death decisions involve a component, at least, that we describe as being ethical, right? Where we need to make an ethical judgment. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's not been any uh, ethical issues in your. Yeah, I've been asked a couple of times, but I have not done it because this is not. I, I have no expertise in the areas that are important right now. I know a lot about the stuff that I know about. I know very little about rationing ventilator usage during a public health emergency, or in making the kinds of tough public, uh, you know, policy trade-offs between quarantine and, and uh, you know, economic costs. You know, that's, that's a whole area in and of itself. And I think the only people who should be talking about those things right now, you know, publicly are experts. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have been asked, I actually got asked to do a t TV interview about ventilator rationing. And I, I just, I've been saying no consistently. I, I don't, 
Um, I don't, I don't have the expertise to, to do anything to, to speak publicly about these, about these sorts of things. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's, I mean, that kind of goes for ethics generally. Uh, Definitely. And in some ways, I mean, I'm contacted somewhat often about, you know, consulting or responding to ethical issues in the news. And in a lot of cases, right, you kind of got to know where, yeah. uh, I can't speak to that in intelligently. And also, yeah, I mean, if you're not informed, it can be pretty irresponsible to give kind of ethical declarations about what's right or wrong or, you know, what we need to be thinking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. It's situations. very irresponsible. I mean, it all depends on the venue, yeah. right? Like, you know, this is a podcast for your various subscribers. I'm happy to, to offer an opinion here with suitable headers and caveats about things in this kind of venue. That's fine. Or on, tw on, you know, on an Instagram post, what's the difference? Only my friends see that. But when you're given a TV interview or something like that in the middle of a, or a radio interview or something in the middle of a public health emergency, the things you say are not just going to be, you know, your friends go, Oh, that's a neat point. You know, they could really influence behavior. Uh, it could, it could change people's perceptions of risk to themselves and their families. It's irresponsible in those cases to speak on things you don't, yeah. you don't really know about. Yeah. There are good experts in this country on things like triage, uh, emergency ethic, emergency, you know, trauma care ethics, public health ethics. They, they can have the floor. They should have the floor for, for the foreseeable future. Uh, one day, things that I know a little bit more about might become, you know, might come to the forefront. Um, you know, uh, uh, human subjects research for vaccine development or something like that. I, I'd be a little bit more amenable to making a statement. Or doing some, you know, whatever, yeah. doing an interview or something that. Yeah. Uh, but I'm certainly not going to say anything about ventilator rationing. So yeah, that's I think that's helpful and, and responsible the way you're putting that. Um, you know, kind of what other thought I had. I mean, just kind of you know, the, the the comment you made earlier about uh, public philosophy. You know, kind of not really being into the distinction between say public and private philosophy, and really any true worthy philosophical problem is a public problem. Um, I think, I think the thing is, that I think there at the same time that there's also a push for, this is not just for philosophers, this is for people working at universities and scholars more generally. Public philosophy also has something to do with the way in which you're doing the work, right? Not just the problem. And so if we go all the way back to, to, to Plato, right? I mean, in the, kind of the history of philosophy, there's this kind of stepping away from um, the, common, the common problem or the problems of the body, the problems of the masses, and thinking about the true problems of the philosopher in a certain type of way of, of thinking about them and engaging with them. Now I'm kind of talking at broad strokes here, but I think at the same time, part of it is not just the, the kind of problem you're working on, it's the way in which you're working on it, right? How you're speaking, how you're talking, who you're talking to, um, the places you're, you're, you're interacting with people, right? So I think there's, there's also that aspect of it too, which I could see even if you're working on a very worthy, uh, publicly relevant problem, like public health, for example. Um, if you're, writing about it solely in like inscrutable ways, right? And you only present on it at professional conferences. Yeah. I think that's a very different kind of public philosophy than, than maybe other kinds that are done. Yeah, well there I'm gonna be a little bit more conservative, I think. Um, I don't, uh, in that, I, I'm not, I, I think that uh, what you, well, let's call it old fashioned traditional scholarly work is totally fine. And there should be no, I don't think people have any obligation to try and, uh, you know, have some kind of public impact in that sense by, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever, having a robust social media. I don't even know what, what that really means in, in some way. I, and I, I think 
and I'll, I'll say though, the reason why I think this is not, uh, is from experience. If you are working in, so as somebody who works, you know, full-time basically on these sorts of public problems, when you do that kind of stuff, uh, you use your traditional scholarly work, you know, publishing in journals, going to professional conferences actually has a massive impact. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it actually influences people who make decisions, who are designing experiments, shaping policy, things like this. And it does get out in the world and have, and have an impact, even if the public at large you know, doesn't know much about it. I think philosophers have this sort of, uh, make this assumption that if it's in a professional journal or if it's just a talk I gave at a because if it's in a metaphysics journal and it's a talk I gave at the APA, it doesn't have any impact. But, you know, if it's in the New England Journal of Medicine and it's a talk that you gave at the, uh, you know, National Human Genome Research Institute's conference for people who work on genetics, it actually did have, an, it has a little bit of a, has yeah. a bit of an impact. People who are not philosophers read it. They take it into consideration when they're making decisions. Mm -hmm. It shapes their, their understanding of the ethical things in their field and then shapes how they do business. So yeah. I don't think there's a need to, I'm not against it. So I'm against it for me personally. I do not want any of that kind of, I don't like doing that kind of stuff. I don't want to do it. I don't care if it gives me exposure for my work or anything like that. I want to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. I'm just a traditional old fashioned intellectual in that respect. Um, but uh, I don't have anything against that other dimension of public philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think it's, you know, I made some strong statements about how you have an obligation to work on public problems, but I don't, I don't think you have a concomitant obligation to address the public mm -hmm. uh, in the sense in which you described. If you're working on the right problems uh, in the right way, your work has impact, you know, even if you're never on the 10 o'clock news. Got you. Okay. Yeah. No, interesting. Interesting take. Um, we have now kind of a tradition, Brian, we like to do um, uh, called the lightning round. This is uh, five questions to help our listener get a little, get to know you a little bit better. So the first one is, uh, so we, we gestured towards this in the podcast, but Brian is not just a, a talented philosopher, but also a musician who plays in a band as a bassist, correct? Yes. I play bass in the, in the band. What is your favorite baseline if you were gonna pick a song you say this is the baseline where i'm like hell yes definitely gonna listen to this song what is it yeah that's like a really difficult question i couldn't obviously pick just one but when you say the question a bunch pop into my head that i think immediately are like uh and i'm just gonna throw them out there with the caveat that i have no idea how to arrange these in any sort of sure cardinal ordering which is the best one but sure uh, the baseline in Superstition by Stevie Wonder. Mm. An amazing baseline. Mm. One of the mm -hmm. best ever written. Mm -hmm. um, the baseline in, uh, so there's a great Black Sabbath song on the first Black Sabbath record, Evil Woman. Baseline is just uncomplicated. Baseline, very uncomplicated, but the groove is incredible. You don't think of Black Sabbath, everybody thinks of Black Sabbath as being a metal band. Yeah. You know, a hard rock band. The first Black Sabbath album is just a deep like dark groovy record uh -huh. uh, evil woman great bass line from a great bass all-time great rock and roll bassist those are the two that come to mind yeah that's good that. uh no that's good yeah I mean, the, what comes to mind for me is um 
Another One Bites the Dust uh, by Queen and uh, Steer It Out by Marley. The, the bass is so featured in those songs. Normally you never notice bass, but of yeah. course in, in Another One Bites the Dust, the me- you, all you hear is the bass. That's what people think of. Them. Yes, yes. So Brian, you are originally from Chicago. I am. Uh, what is the most Chicago thing about you? Wow. <laughs> Uh, definitely the most Chicago thing about me besides my accent has got to be that I just, I will not put ketchup on a hot dog ever. And I, I refuse to allow it in my house. I just refuse to allow it in my, you come over to barbecue at my place and we're making uh, sausage or hot dogs or something. I will not allow you to put ketchup on your, you know, and I don't know why people do it. And it's just not, it's, it should be, it's practically a city ordinance in Chicago. The ketchup is not allowed on hot dogs. And wow, I did not know that. Strong words. Strong, you- yeah, no, it's, it's not civilized to do that. Okay, that's good to know. That's a, that's a fun fact. So here's it. Yeah. What is something that people who are not professional philosophers don't understand about being a professional philosopher? Uh, I think they don't understand that uh, it's a lot like every, it's just like every other job. There's meetings, there's paperwork, there's, uh, you know, there's office politics. You don't just sit around with a beard and uh, think about, uh, you know, the meaning of life. It's just like being in any other job in, a, in almost every other respect, except what happens inside the classroom and, uh, you know, in the, in the time that we get to do our research. It'd be nice if they understood also that um, philosophers are not all dudes and don't all have beards. Some of the most interesting philosophical work ever is not done by Guys with beards who think about the meaning of life is quite opposite. Philosophy nowadays is, is a very large intellectual enterprise and very uh, heterogeneous, extremely internally diverse. Could be more on all those scores, but uh, yes. I would like people not to associate the image of philosophy with a guy who looks like Karl Marx, who just sits there smoking a pipe. Right. You know, the meaning of life. Uh, It's not the way it is. Yes. uh, It would be nice if they also knew that, like, uh, when I'm not in the classroom, I'm filling out forms, doing travel reimbursements, (laughs) going to meaningless meetings of one kind or another. It's a job like everybody else's job in, in that respect. Right. The part they don't tell you about when you're getting your PhD is the yeah. filling out the reimbursement forms. No training in that. The reimbursement so. forms. Uh, what is your favorite thing about living in Portland? I can't pick one thing. I, I've, I moved away from home 20 years ago when I went to college. I, I've never lived for more than a couple of years in any one place. That's part of the job. That's just part of the job. It's the academic life. You move around. Yep. Yep. You never really get to develop actually a sense of connection to any place. You and me lived in the Happy Valley for a couple of years together. We did. Now you're in Bakersfield and I'm in Portland and uh, I don't know how long I'll be here, but of all the places I've lived since leaving Chicago, Portland is definitely already my favorite. Uh, I really love everything there is about the city. I dig the weather. I'm kind of cool with the rain. It's a rainy day today, like a typical Portland day today, rainy and cloudy. That suits my temperament. The food up here is fantastic. There's a real genuine like communal civic spirit that's part of portland culture people like being portlanders and they uh and they are happy to do things to help each other you know they care about the issues in the city that's something that's very uh cool and uh unique of all the places i've lived even in um in the small towns i lived in you don't really have that sort of sense of of communal spirit there are things that matter a lot here that uh elsewhere in the country don't matter a lot people read actual physical books and talk about them a lot and have favorite bookshops a great deal of culture involves books. They like music still. Mm. Uh, people like to buy records, listen to them from start to finish, hold on to them, you know, talk about their favorite albums, 
stuff like that. You know, music in that sense, which has sort of vanished. Yeah, so lots of good things about Boria. I've had wonderful it's times good. there. It's a great city. I could go. I could keep going on. I'll stop. Yeah. I'll stop at that. I'll stop. So last last question. Um, you know, for many of us in our, in our lives, you know, I think we have different years that we've lived that we think are we look back on and we think, well, that was a pretty formative year for me. You know, some really important things happened. Um, sometimes it's you know more than one year, of course. But is there a year or a span of years in your life that you look back at and you think? That was a particularly formative period of my life. And uh, if so, what, what, what were those years and, and why were they formative? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm going to pick the three years that I was in Arkansas getting my master's degree. I, I showed up, I mean, I could pick a couple of different years and spans of years, but looking back right now from this vantage point, I showed up in Fayetteville, Arkansas uh, from, I, I went to college in New York City and grew up in Chicago. So, you know, it's kind of on a flyer, I decided to move to Fayetteville, Arkansas to get a master's in philosophy on a trial basis. I just figured, you know, I'll give it a year and see, and then I'll go to law school like I'm supposed to if it doesn't work out. I didn't know anybody in Arkansas. I didn't know anything about Arkansas. I didn't know anything about Fayetteville. I had no experience living in a place like that, having spent my entire life up to that point in time, first in Chicago and then in New York City. I didn't even have a driver's license until two months before I moved to Fayetteville because nobody drives a car, you know, in New York. and where I lived in Chicago, uh, you should have had a car, but I didn't, I didn't have, I got away without, without having to drive, you know, total reboot in every way mm -hmm. for my life to move there. And I was 80% sure it wasn't going to work out that I'd spend a year studying philosophy and then I'd get real. And, you know, by the time I left three years later, I was very different person in every respect. Well, maybe this isn't the most important respect, but looking back on it, certainly I was no longer just getting a philosophy degree on a trial basis because I wanted, and then, you know, going to give it, cash it in and go to law school or something. By the time I was done there, I was not only ready mentally, psychologically, but I had the skills to actually make it, make it, give it a shot to be a professional. Mm -hmm. And uh, I certainly wouldn't have done as well getting my, P getting my PhD in the years since my PhD, you know, all, all, and all the ways in which uh, kind of are necessary to do good at, to be a pro. I would not have done well at them if I hadn't uh, spent those three years in, in Arkansas getting training from some serious and really good. Awesome. Uh, th those were formative years for me in every, every sense of the word. Awesome. Thank you, Ryan, for the really fascinating conversation um, and fun. Appreciate you taking time out of your quarantine and work schedule to, to chat with us. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully we can connect again sometime soon. No problem. Thanks for having me. On behalf of the Kegley Institute of Ethics, we want to thank all of our listeners for supporting the Ethicist Corner, especially through these difficult times. We hope you stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next week as we interview the newest addition to the KAE team, Dr. Callie McCullough. She is the new Assistant Director of the Institute, where she will take on a variety of roles, including expanding the KAE Humanities Beyond Bars initiative and the Student Fellowship Programs at CSUB. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.